Amen. And I get to follow that. Oh, joy. So tonight, for our leadership service, we're going to walk through a bit of an exercise. We're going to continue in our biblical studies, as you've been doing with me on and off throughout the year. And I'm going to violate a whole bunch of rules I told you to observe tonight. So now you get to watch me break everything that I've been telling you to do. But I'll own up to it, and we'll walk through it together. And for a little while tonight, I want to walk through King Saul, Lessons in Failed Leadership. Lessons in Failed Leadership. Now, there's a lot of stuff here. I can't possibly cover it. Do you notice my scripture text? 1 Samuel chapter 10, not verse, chapter 10 through chapter 15. So to even possibly do some of this justice, I'm going to have to go really fast. And I keep talking about slow read, slow down, take your time. And I want you to know that this week I took my time. So now I can go really fast. But on your time, read slow, take your time, absorb what it's saying. So I am not going to read six chapters worth of text tonight. My wife is saying, good. She had no idea where I was going. But to be fair, we are going to read good portions of it together. So I'll go fast and slow, and you do your best to keep up. I would encourage you this week, if you have time, to go back and reread these six chapters and see what stands out to you. So jumping right in, having done my slow read earlier this week, we're going to go ahead and look at these six chapters and some selected text out of there. So to set this up in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul has been, excuse me, Samuel is the last judge of Israel. He's the bridge between the judges and then the kingdom, the monarchy that's established with this nation. And the last judge of Israel has been tasked by God to now anoint a king. And God is going to tell him who this is going to be. And we are introduced to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And so jumping into the text, we're going to read a few verses out of it. And starting at verse 5, Saul has now been given instructions by the prophet Samuel. And Samuel is telling him what's going to happen to him when he leaves Samuel's presence. This is going to be the confirmation that I really am speaking to you from God. And he says, when you arrive at Gibeah of God, where the garrison of the Philistines is located, you will meet a band of prophets coming down from the place of worship. They will be playing a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and a lyre, and they will be prophesying. And at that time, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. And, what does it say? You will be changed into a different person. After these signs take place, do what must be done, for God is with you. So notice that the prophet tells him, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you will be different after that experience. God is going to change something in you. Now, if we were to back up in the text, which we don't have time to get to tonight, Saul did not know who Samuel was. They have not met before this. He didn't even know where Samuel lived. He didn't know there was a prophet in the place where he was looking for his father's lost livestock. And the implication, and I'm reading a little between the lines, you can go check for yourself later, is Saul doesn't really have much of a relationship with God. Saul doesn't really know God. But he's met the man of God, and the man of God said, this is what's going to happen to you later today. 
and the Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you will be different after that. So this is really Saul's introduction, Saul's personal introduction to the God of Israel. And keep reading in the text, it says, Then go down to Gilgal Hedemi, and I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. Tuck that one away in the back of your head. We're going to come back to that later. You must wait seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. As Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart. Something has changed in Saul. Before all of this has even happened, just as he's beginning his journey home, God gives him a new heart, and all of Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming toward them, and then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. Notice, this is an exception, though. This is not something Saul has done before. This is a new experience for him. When those who knew Saul heard about it, they exclaimed, What? Is even Saul a prophet? How did the son of Kish become a prophet? So the people who know Saul know Saul does not act like this. Saul is not one given to worship. Saul is not one given to prophecy. Something has changed in this young man who has been anointed as the next, or rather the first, I should say, the first king of Israel. You can go on and read the rest of chapter 10. We're going to skip it for the sake of time tonight, and we're going to jump into chapter 11. In chapter 11, and keep in mind, chapter and verse divisions come much later, not when the text was originally written. So we're just jumping farther down the story. So the next place we're going to stop in this story is when Saul now faces his first task, if you will, as the king of Israel. And the problem is they are under attack. And there is a foreign nation that has come to oppress them, and they're going to have to deal with this. And Samuel, excuse me, Saul doesn't really know what to do yet. He hasn't had to act as a king. But the city of Jabesh is under attack, and they need help. And so they've sent out a distress call, if you will. And remember, Saul's not really recognized as king yet. He hasn't been tested. There's no battle yet. Other than Samuel anointing him as king, there really hasn't been much by way of the public accepting him as their king. And this is his first real test to see what's going to happen. So let's jump back in chapter 11, starting at verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and they told the people about their plight, everyone broke into tears. Saul had been plowing a field with his oxen. And when he returned to town, he asked, what's the matter? Why is everyone crying? What is Saul doing when all of this is going on? He's gone back to farming. So he's not acting like a king yet. So he comes into town at the end of the day's work, and he sees that the town square, if you will, is full of people. Everyone is distressed. They've heard this horrible news about the people of Jabesh and that they're under attack. And if someone does not come rescue them, they're doomed. And they're going to be enslaved by this foreign nation. And so they told him about the message from Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he became very angry. Notice again, Spirit of God once again comes down powerfully upon Saul. So God has revisited Saul. 
if you will, in a way, he's been anointed for this task. He took two oxen, and he cut them into pieces, and he sent the messengers to carry them throughout Israel with this message. This is what will happen to the oxen of anyone who refuses to follow Saul and Samuel into battle. Notice he pulls Samuel into it. And the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger, and all of them came out together as one. At this point, they're not acting as a unified nation either. Go back and reread the end of Judges. Horrible despair. Horrible disarray that this nation, they are, everyone did what was right in their own sight. You see that four times in the last couple chapters of Judges. But now they are coming together as one. And when Saul mobilized them at Bezek, he found that there were 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. So instantly, within a few days, Saul now has an army. And you can go back and read about it later. And he goes on, and God is with him, and he leads this army, and they are victorious, and it is his first victory. And as a result of this victory, the people recognize Saul, and they say, you're our king. They finally publicly acknowledge him. Saul steps up to the plate. He begins to act like a king for the first time. You can keep reading. We get into chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, and it's Samuel's farewell address to Israel as their judge. And it's the transition to Saul as king. So Saul's already been anointed as king. He's just demonstrated his leadership ability in battle, and now the people recognize him as king, not just Samuel. And so chapter 12 is Samuel's farewell address to the nation, basically stepping off the scene and saying, I will no longer be your judge. Here is your king. And he says, I will continue to be around. I will continue to pray for you. I will continue to give counsel and advice. But this man's in charge. There's a transition that happens in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel where Saul really officially finally becomes the king of the nation. And so then we get into chapter 13. I'm going to skip over most of chapter 12 because, again, it's in essence, it's a farewell address. Gentlemen, something just happened. I lost the iPad, so I don't know if it's refreshing or what, but can you go ahead and pull up my next set of verses? We're going to go ahead and read the first 14 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'll read them here. You can just follow along with me. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel, and he sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and the other 1,000 went with Saul's son Jonathan to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of the Philistines at Gibeah. The news spread quickly among the Philistines, and so Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Hebrews, hear this, rise up in revolt. All Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and that the Philistines were now hated and the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. So now it's on. We've gone from skirmishes here and there to now we are in full-blown warfare with our neighbors. The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3 thousand chariots, six thousand charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. 
You hear the hyperbole again? If you think back to our August big group learning, as many warriors as the sand on the seashore. To give you just a basic comparison, understand what a big deal chariots are at this point in military history. Chariots are the equivalent of a tank. That's the closest thing I could think of for us today. So it would be like an army of foot soldiers gathering together to fight another army of foot soldiers, but the other army of foot soldiers also has 3,000 tanks in addition to their foot soldiers. They're vastly outnumbered. They're way outgunned, if you will, going into this conflict. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in, and because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. So, here we are. It's on. We're in trouble. He's called together. He said, rise up. It's time to revolt. We're going to push the Philistines out. And then everybody shows up to play. And it's, oh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> and they have chariots. And so everybody starts kind of creeping away from this man they've just declared to be their king. And they're beginning to hide. And Saul is in a tight spot. And the text says that they are hard-pressed, and they've got to figure out what they're going to do now. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier. But Samuel still didn't come, and Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. It's dwindling very quickly, and he's been waiting for Samuel for seven days, and Samuel hasn't showed up. Now, you can go back and read chapter 10, verse 8, when he was first anointed, and Samuel sent him away, and he said, wait seven days, and I'll catch up with you, and then we'll celebrate this anointing. This is a different incident. My point, though, is that Saul has been down this road before. A few months back... The prophet anointed him and said, go on home, wait seven days, I'll meet up with you, and then we'll have our public ceremony. Once again, the prophet has said, get your men together, wait seven days, I'll show up. So Saul has been down this road before. He knows what this looks like. He knows what it is to wait a week on the prophet. Except everybody's slipping away, and they're hard-pressed and he's in a stressful situation. And they get to day seven, and Samuel doesn't show up. And now he's nervous. And so Saul is really tested for the first time. And he's under pressure, and he's not sure what to do. And so he's sitting around, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and the prophet doesn't show up. And now what do I do? And so Saul makes the decision to take matters into his own hand. Verse 9. And so he demanded, bring the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Words matter. It's trying to stress the point that Saul took this. He didn't just command that it happened. He took it upon himself to offer the sacrifices. 
Now, understand, this takes a while. They're going to sacrifice more than one animal. They're going to build an altar. They're going to slaughter the animals. They're going to drain the blood. They're going to dress out the animals. Then they're going to burn the sacrifice. This takes a few hours. This wasn't a five-minute transaction. But it's still just a few hours. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet him and welcome him. But Samuel said, what is this you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me. And you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal. And I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Okay, he's been king for like a month. We're just getting started. And he's already taken matters into his own hand when he got impatient and didn't know what to do. And Samuel said, this is bad. This is not off to a good start. And he's frustrated. And Samuel goes home. He doesn't stay with Saul. And now Saul is stuck because he took matters into his own hand. He offered the sacrifice himself without the man of God present. The man of God shows up and says, you're on your own. You decide to do this yourself. See it out. And so he goes home, and meanwhile, the troops are continuing to creep away and creep away and creep away. And 3,000 troops dwindles down to 600. So now he's got one-fifth of the military might that he thought he had, and he's only got 600 men, and he's not sure what to do. And so he's paralyzed by fear. And you're going to have to go back and read this later in chapter 13. He's not sure what to do next, so he does nothing. You can read the rest of the chapter. Basically, he sits still. He just camps out at Gilgal, trying to figure out what to do, not sure where to go. Most of the army has fled. Meanwhile, the Philistines have all gathered along with all their chariots, and he has this impending battle, and he's about to get smashed, and he doesn't know what to do. And so he stops. He got ahead of himself and didn't wait for the man of God to get him instruction. And then once he got ahead of himself, he got out too far and didn't know where to go, so he just does nothing. Notice nowhere in the text, he doesn't apologize. He doesn't back down. He doesn't try to make it right. He lets Samuel go home, and then he's stuck. So he's just waiting. So you get into chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. And in chapter 14, where we pick up, someone else finally takes some initiative. Someone else decides to show some real leadership. And it's Saul's son, Jonathan. And so now that they've dwindled down to these 600 men and they don't really know what to do, Jonathan, it says, 
one day, so some time has passed, maybe it's a few days, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a couple weeks, but they're still camped out trying to figure out what to do. Jonathan decides with his armor bearer, you know what? Let's go up. Let's stir some stuff up and see what happens. And his armor bearer says, I'll go wherever you'll go. You can go read it in the first 15 verses of chapter 14. And they set off on their own. But Jonathan has a very, very different attitude than his father in the way that he's approaching this. Because Jonathan, right from the beginning, doesn't talk about his army. And Jonathan doesn't talk about his ability. Jonathan fully expects that if anything's going to work, it would have to happen because the Lord is with him. I'll point it out to you. Let's look at our next set of verses. 1 Samuel chapter 14, let's jump in at verses 6, 7, and 8. Let's go across to the outposts of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps, notice this, what does it say? Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Is this about Jonathan? Is this about Jonathan's ability? No. So right from the beginning, he says, let's see if God will show up. He can take care of this. He doesn't need a whole lot. Do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. All right, then, Jonathan told him. We will cross over and let them see us. And then I apologize because I only put through verse 8. But verse 9 says, if they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we'll stop and not go up. And verse 10, but if they say, come on up and fight, then we will go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them. And so Jonathan puts it in the hands of God right from the beginning. He says, maybe God will show up. This isn't too hard for God. So let's just go see what happens. And if they invite us on up into battle, that'll be a sign to me that God is with us and that this is going to work. And you can go back and read in chapter 14 later how Jonathan and his armor bearer, they climb up these cliff face, and they begin an attack in an open field. And before you know it, they've killed 20 warriors. And all of a sudden, panic breaks out. And this is the way God works, because it's two men. One of them, by the way, go back and read slow. One of them doesn't even have a weapon. Okay, it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. Seriously, it's two men, one of them who does not have a weapon, attack with the Lord's help, and they kill 20 soldiers, and now all of a sudden things start falling apart, and panic breaks out with the Philistines, and they begin to scramble. And meanwhile, not too far away, Saul and his 600 men hear this commotion of what's going on on the cliff face a few hundred yards away, and something's beginning to happen, and now Saul is stirred to action. So we're going to jump down a few verses, and let's begin again at verse 16. And so starting at verse 16 of chapter 14, Saul's lookouts in Gibeah of Benjamin saw a strange sight. The vast army of the Philistines began to melt away in every direction. Call the roll and find out who's missing, Saul ordered. And when they checked, they found that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Then Saul shouted to Ahijah, brings the ephod here. Now, you've got to understand a little bit here. That means he has a priest with him. The ephod was this priestly garment. 
This was worn for special occasions when you're seeking direction from God. So when he says bring the ephod here, he's asking for God's direction. Where's Samuel, by the way? Gone. So Saul is now turned to another priest, and he needs help, and he needs to find out what's going on. Bring the ephod here. For at that time, Ahijah was wearing the ephod in front of the Israelites. But when Saul was talking to the priests, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. Watch this. So Saul said to the priest, never mind, let's get going. So he recognizes he needs direction from God. He asked the priest to give him direction. He's talking to him, but the commotion, the panic, the stir, the outside forces that are trying to get his attention, they've gotten so loud. He says, forget this. We don't have time for this. Let's just go. So he calls and asks for direction from God, but then doesn't wait to hear a reply for the second time in the same story. Let's just get going. Jumping down a few verses. Let's jump down to 24, verse 24. Now, the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day. So they charge out and they attack, and they're beginning to make gains. Because Saul had placed them under an oath, saying, Let a curse fall on anyone who eats before this evening, before I have full vengeance on my enemies. So no one ate anything all day. So now they're pressing the advantage. And they've charged out. He has not waited for God's direction twice now. And he makes a foolish, or we could say a rash, decision. And he says, you know what? Forget this, boys. we got to go right now. We don't have time to wait on God. We need to move now. And in fact, don't even eat. Nobody eat. Anybody who eats, they're going to be under a curse. Nobody stops until I say we're done. And I've extracted my full vengeance on our enemies. Next verse. Even though, well, we missed something. I apologize. Anyone who eats before evening, before I have full in- revenge on my enemies. So no one ate anything all day, even though they had all found honeycomb on the ground in the forest. They didn't dare touch the honey because they all feared the oath they had taken. But Jonathan had not heard his father's command. Where's Jonathan and his armor bearer while all this is going on? They're fighting. They're already engaged in the battle. Who's Jonathan relying on? The Lord. Perhaps the Lord will be with us. He can win this battle. But Jonathan had not heard his father command, and he dipped the end of his stick into a piece of honeycomb, and he ate the honey, and after he had eaten it, he felt refreshed. But one of the men saw him and said, Your father made the army take a strict oath. Notice another detail here. Earlier it said, He said to them, I'm going to put a curse on anybody. Now we get a little more detail. Not only did he threaten to curse them, he made them all take an oath that if they ate, they'd be cursed. Your father made the army take a strict oath that anyone who eats food today will be cursed. That is why everyone is weary and faint. My father has made trouble for us all, Jonathan exclaimed. A command like that only hurts us. So it's... A decision made in haste without counsel, without waiting on God's direction. And those kind of decisions only hurt us. 
See how refreshed I am now that I've eaten this little bit of honey? If the men had been allowed to eat freely from the food they found among our enemies, think how many more Philistines we could have killed. By the way, how often have you walked through the forest and just found honey lying around on the ground? So who's providing sustenance? You got to read slow, catch the details. But they're in too much of a hurry to take advantage of it. Who found the honey? Everyone. Go back and read it. It said they had all seen it, but they were terrified to touch it. Food right there, sitting on the ground waiting for them because of the oath they had been put under. They chased and they killed the Philistines all day from Michmash to Ahijalon, growing more and more faint. And that evening, they rushed for the battle plunder, and they butchered the sheep and goats and cattle and calves, but they ate them without draining the blood. They're so famished by the end of this day when they stop fighting that they descend into the enemy camp. They find all of their provisions and their livestock, and so they begin killing and immediately eating this food because they're starving and they're exhausted, and they're not draining the blood. They're not following the commands that they know they're supposed to be able to do. And Saul gets word of this. And he realizes that it's not good. Someone reported to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that still has blood in it. That is very wrong, Saul said. Find a large stone and roll it over here. And so they roll it over. This messed up again. Then go out among the truths and tell them to bring the cattle, the sheep, and the goats here to me. Kill them here and drain the blood before you eat it. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. And so that night, all the troops brought their animals and slaughtered them there. So Saul's trying to make it right. Notice the next verse, verse 35. I find this very curious. Right in the middle of this story, after the battle's happened, after we've made some bad decisions, then... Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first of the altars he built to the Lord. It was the first of the altars he had built to the Lord. Is this the beginning of his kingship? No. But this is the first time Saul has done something for himself in connection with God. Up to this point, he's dependent on Samuel. Or he's been dependent on the priest with the ephod. Somebody else contact God for me. Except he's too impatient to wait around for an answer. So now he finally builds his own altar. Verse 36. Then Saul said, let's chase the Philistines all night and plunder them until sunrise. Let's destroy every last one of them. And his men replied, we will do whatever you think is best. But the priest said, let's ask God first. So Saul builds an altar. But again, we haven't waited for a reply. Third time, same story. We're going to ask God, but not wait for an answer. So the priest says, wait, why don't we ask God what's going on? So Saul asked God, should we go after the Philistines? 
Will you help us defeat them? But God made no reply that day. God made no reply that day. So what do you think should happen in this situation at this point? This is the third time, same story. Saul is sought after God. The first time he's too impatient to wait for an answer. Third time he builds his own altar. The implication is he makes a sacrifice. You don't build an altar just to look at it, okay? So he makes some sort of sacrifice, and then he says, come on, boys, we're going to go the rest of the night. Giddy up. We're not stopping until they're completely destroyed. And everybody's like, if that's what you want, we're going to do it. And the priest raises his hand somewhere in the back. He says, uh, should somebody ask God first? Maybe. But God doesn't reply. We're still being tested. So what do you think the appropriate answer is at this point? You would think it'd be to slow down. Then Saul said to the leaders, something is wrong. I want all of my army commanders to come here. We must find out what sin was committed today. I vow by the name of the Lord who rescued Israel that the sinner will surely die, even if it's my own son, Jonathan. But no one would tell him what the trouble was. You know what that means? They all know. Everybody else knows what's going on. And I'm reading between the lines, but I imagine he makes some crazy comment like, even if it was Jonathan, he'd have to die. And there's crickets, right? (laughs) Nobody says boo after that. (laughs) They're just looking sideways at each other, trying to figure out what to do. Then Saul said, Jonathan and I will stand over here and all of you stand over there. And the people responded to Saul, whatever you think is best. Okay, boss. Then Saul prayed, O Lord God of Israel, please show us who is guilty and who is innocent. Then they cast sacred lots, and Jonathan and Saul were chosen as the guilty ones, and the people were declared innocent. Then Saul said, Now cast lots again and choose between me and Jonathan. And Jonathan was shown to be the guilty one. Tell me what you have done, Saul demanded of Jonathan. I tasted a little honey, Jonathan admitted. It was only a little bit on the end of my stick. Does that deserve death? Yes, Jonathan, Saul said. You must die. May God strike me and even kill me if you do not die for this. Does this sound like a rash decision? This has been a day of bad, bad decisions, impatient decisions, because we're not waiting for God to give direction. Where does this conversation take place, by the way? Is this a private conversation or a public one? This is a very public conversation. Do you remember when we talked in August about honor-shame cultures and how there's only so much honor and so much shame and there's not enough to go around and when you make public declarations, you're kind of putting your honor on the line? The king has just publicly declared that his son should die for making this mistake. His son who started the battle his son who led the charge, his son who did not know about the ridiculous decree that his father had made. And so now in front of all of his other military commanders, he's just said, execute my son. He's wrong. I'm right. But the people broke in. How long has Saul been king? 
a month. But the people broke in and said to Saul, Jonathan has won this great victory for Israel. Should he die? Far from it. As surely as the Lord lives, not one hair on his head will be touched, for God helped him do a great deed today. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Honor, shame, culture. What has just happened? The king has just been publicly shamed. And all of his leaders sided with his son and said, no, we're not doing that today. And as a consequence of that, what started this? He built his own altar, made his own decision, and said, we're going to charge through the night. We're going to keep chasing them down. We're going to completely eradicate the Philistines. They're not going to exist by tomorrow at sunrise. Now we get to verse 46. Then Saul called back the army from chasing the Philistines. And the Philistines returned home. So all of these glorious plans for victory were just abandoned as a result of these foolish decisions. Now, we're going to jump forward because I've got to go quickly. You can read the rest of chapter 14 and see what happens later. But jumping into chapter 15, some time has passed. Samuel comes back to Saul. One day, Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nations of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. You catch that list. Was Samuel vague? Does anybody here have any questions about what Samuel's instructions were at this point? Completely destroy the nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, donkeys. Anybody confused right now about what Samuel instructed? So Saul mobilized his army at Telaim. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul and his army went to a town of the Amalekites, and they lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent this warning to the Kenites, Move away from where the Amalekites live, or you will die with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havelah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but de completely destroyed everyone else. But watch this. Verse 9. Saul and his men spared Agag's life, and they kept the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs. Everything, in fact. Let's, let's just settle here. So they kept a little bit of this and a little bit of that and some of this over here. And so. Actually, no, no. They just kept everything, in fact, that looked good to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Only what was worthless or of poor quality. He kept everything that looked good to him. 
Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel's repenting for Saul. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went down to the town of Carmel to set up a monument for God. Nope. Wait. I'm sorry. Saul went down to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. Say what? Something weird just happened here. Something crazy just happened in this story. We have gone way off the tracks at this point. And Saul has set up a monument to himself. Look at how awesome I am. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. I have carried out the Lord's command. Then what is all the bleeding of the sheep and goats and the lowing of the cattle that I hear? Samuel demanded. I've got this image of a dad with his arms crossed, tapping his foot. You know, the toddler's like, it's not me. I didn't eat the candy with his blue tongue as he's telling his dad, I didn't eat the candy. You know? I've completely done everything you commanded. He can hear the bleeding of the goats in the background, right? Really? You did what I asked. Then what do I hear? Well, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, the goats, and the cattle, Saul admitted. But, but, they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. I'm going to slow down and read that verse again. Tell me if anything stands out to you. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, the goats, and the cattle, Saul admitted. But they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. What just happened? Where's the sacrifice going? And who's God? Is it being sacrificed to? Something has shifted in Saul at this point. And he's tried a few times to call on this God. But God didn't answer fast enough for him. So he just figured he'd do it himself. And he's made a horrible mess of things. So God gives him another chance. And he still does it his own way. Then the prophet corrects him on it. And his answer is, well, I was going to sacrifice it to your God. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you, Saul asked. And Saul probably wants to know, because remember, God is not speaking to Saul. And Saul's too impatient to wait for an answer. And Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush 
Here we see that impatience again. Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, and the plunder to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as the worshiping of idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And I have to move fast. There's just so much here. Go back and read it slowly this week, which is the opposite of what I'm doing at the moment. But go back and read it slowly. This was the last chance. I was going to sacrifice it to your God. I was just going to do it my way. And the answer is God's now rejected you as king. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. For I was afraid of the people and I did what they demanded. Who's king? Saul. Now, he's already drawn a line in the sand once, and it was a foolish, rash decision, and the people said, no, we're not doing that. So now he's given instruction again, and they want to do something else, but he won't draw a line in the sand at the appropriate place. So now he's going to cave and do what they want. His kingdom is very fragile, and he knows it. But now please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. As Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back, and he tore the hem of his robe. So the implication is they're talking. Samuel turns to walk away in disgust, and the king reaches out to grab Samuel's, uh, Samuel's clothes. In other words, to say, like, wait, don't go yet. And in grabbing after him as he's leaving, it rips the hem, or it rips the bottom portion of the back of Samuel's garment. Got a lot of symbolism going in this story. I don't have time to get into it right now. But now the king, who should be the anointed one, is left holding the torn garment of the prophet who has walked away from him. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to someone else who is better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. And then Saul pleaded again, I know I have sinned, but please, watch this, but please at least pardon my sins and restore the kingdom to me. Please at least beg God for mercy. No. But please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. Remember, we've talked about honor, shame, culture before in that big group learning. This is still not about being right with God. This is about retaining honor in public. This is about saving face. All right, fine. Maybe God took the kingdom from me, but at least... Let me look good this one last time. 
Come back with me today so I can worship your God. Restore my honor in front of the elders of the people. So Samuel finally agreed, and he went back with him, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring King Agag to me. And Agag arrived full of hope, and he thought, surely the worst is over, and I've been spared. But Samuel said, as your sword has killed the sons of many mothers, now your mother will be childless. And Samuel cut Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Go do a word study on that. It's hacked. And you can read a bunch of translations. And it's, there's a very graphic vengeance that happens here with Samuel. He does not do a nice, clean execution. It says he, he cut him to pieces. He hacked him up. Then Samuel went home to Ramah, and Saul returned to his house at Gibeah. Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him. And the Lord was sorry he had ever made Saul king of Israel. This is their last interaction. When Samuel leaves this day, he allows Saul to save face in front of the elders of Israel. And he goes with him so Saul can worship Samuel's God. But this is the last time they never speak again. Well, kind of. We're going to get there in a second. They never speak again. There's no more public interaction between them. You jump forward. We're not going to do it. And the scriptures are not on there. But you jump forward and you can read later. You get to 1 Samuel chapter 25. And Samuel dies. And the last judge, the anointed prophet, dies. And they bury him at his house in Ramah. Then you can jump forward a little later into the book of 1 Samuel, and you'll get to chapter 28. And now Saul is in a desperate place. And he's, again, trying to get a hold of God. And you can read in chapter 28 at verse 6, it says that God won't answer Saul's request by dreams or sacred lots. Saul's not casting sacred lots. That means that he's called on priests. They're using the ephod. They're trying to get a hold of God, and God will not answer him. And so in an act of desperation, Saul seeks out a medium, or depending on the translation, you could say a psychic. Samuel's God won't respond, and Saul doesn't know him. And Saul has never built a relationship with God, and he doesn't know God's voice, and he doesn't know how to get a hold of God. And so he's always had to go through someone else. It was either Samuel or it was one of the priests. I skipped over all this part. Sometimes it was through David. But Saul doesn't speak to God on his own. Somebody else has to speak to God for Saul. And now at the end of his life in desperation, all of those avenues are closed to him, so he consults a witch. He goes to seek a medium, someone who can conjure up spirits of the dead, a charlatan, in desperation. Only this time it actually works. You go read later, read between the lines. The witch is terrified, which tells you that the witch did not expect it to work. Okay. So it actually works. And if you don't know, go back and read it later in 1 Samuel chapter 28. In an act of desperation, going to a pagan, wicked, spiritual medium, who does Saul want to speak to? It's still Samuel. And Samuel responds and said, why are you calling me here? You knew this was coming. By this time tomorrow, you're going to be joining me. And it's his death sentence. 
And so his last interaction with Samuel is post-mortem, and he's still not seeking after God. He doesn't call on a medium to try and get a hold of God. He doesn't call on the priests to beg God for forgiveness. Even at the very end, Saul is still trying to talk to the other guy who can talk to God on his behalf. So as I close out tonight, here's a couple things I'd like to highlight. Saul is anointed by the prophet Samuel, but he never develops a relationship with God for himself. The interactions between God and Saul are always transactional. And they're mediated by someone else. Go back and read it later slowly. Every time Saul interacts with God, somebody else is doing it for Saul. And it's a transaction. You do this and I'll do that. You anoint me as king and I'll behave in this way. It's never relational. By the way, I stopped at chapter 15 on purpose because chapter 16, and this is deliberate in the narrative, you know what happens at the beginning of what we call chapter 16? A new character is introduced for the first time. Who's the new character? It's David. And they're purposely set up as a huge contrast. And right from the very beginning of David's story, how is David presented? As someone who loves God, someone who worships God, someone who wants to be in God's presence. How is Saul represented? Someone who needs another person to speak to God for him. Saul never interacts with God on his own. It's always through someone else. And it's always a transaction. I'll do this if you do that. It's never a worship in the sense that he's doing it just for his own. Even when he's anointed and the Spirit comes upon him, it's after Samuel says this is what's going to happen. And Saul doesn't seem to have control of himself and everyone's surprised. It's never initiated by Saul. Second thing I'd point out, because these interactions are transactions and not relational, when God doesn't show up as expected, think honor-shame culture, think of these actions going on. God doesn't honor the agreement. I waited seven days, where are you? It's a transaction, it's not a relationship. And so when God doesn't show up when he expects, Saul becomes impatient. And impatience leads to rash decisions. And rash decisions create public embarrassment, like demanding that his own son be executed right after he just won a victorious battle. And then if you can get to the next slide. I can't see it back here. Rash decisions create public embarrassment. And Slide to the next slide. Shame refuses to then back down. So the shame, rash, this impatience makes bad decisions. Bad decisions bring embarrassment. Embarrassment brings pride. Shame refuses to back down or pride. And then pride leads to abandon and then later failed plans. And it's just this cascading effect of one bad thing. And then finally, pride, I believe we've got one more slide. Pride wants to save face and complete the transaction, but now it's just for show. So that I may worship your God. So as you stand with me tonight, as we're coming to a close, a little heavier tonight, and I know that, and I was praying about it and talking to God, I don't think this is where we're at. I'm not worried about any of you acting like King Saul, but it's our servantship service. This is our leadership service. So I'm talking to leaders tonight. And we see this young man with this incredible start 
who is selected by God to be the first king of this nation. But he never develops a relationship for himself. All of his interactions with God always have to come at the hand of the prophet. It's always got to be the priest who reaches out for him. Later on, it's David, the man who's going to replace him, because David can play and get in God's presence. And when Saul's agitated, David's connection to God can soothe his agitated spirit and bring peace. Saul never establishes that relationship for himself. And because he doesn't establish it, it just leads to a cascade of failures. And I only read half of Saul's story. I stopped at 15 on purpose because 16 introduces David. You can go read for the next 10 chapters all of the terrible decisions that Saul makes in his interactions with David. But before David ever steps on the scene, we can't blame it on jealousy. Before David's ever introduced in the story, Saul is morally rotted from within because he has no relationship with God. And so it's a warning to us. God will anoint us. God will give us direction. God will help us. God will grant us the abilities we need to do special tasks. But you got to know him too. It can't just be a transaction. If it's just transactions, you'll end up like Saul. Heavenly Father, thank you for your inspired word and everything you teach us in it. And in this sobering example tonight, we see a young man who started out well and who started out with your blessing, but he didn't take the time to develop a relationship with you. He didn't build his own altar until it was too late, and then he was too impatient to wait for your response. Help us to learn from this example, and help us, Lord Jesus, to take away from this tonight that we've got to stay in connection with you. We put our trust in you. And we know that you anoint us. We know that you give us abilities. You lead us where you want. But even in doing that, we need to hear from you. And we need to be in relationship with you. It can't just be about what you've called us to do. We've got to know you personally. So help us not to fall into these kind of mistakes. Don't ever let us slip into a transaction mode with you. Instead, Lord, may we continue to seek after a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.